0: I want to thank all of you in the worship team for being here. Many of these folks were here, uh, was it Friday night? We were here and have come back and been a part of things. So thank you for your energy and your leadership and being part of things. And the tech team, a few of the hosts and so forth, we had a marvelous uh, Christmas Eve worship services here at Christ Church. I hope that many of you had a chance to be a part of it. About 350 or so folks came through our doors and had a chance to sing some great songs and see each other. It was a stunningly beautiful evening. So I'm glad to welcome you all today, which is the 26th of December, and it has some significance in in several ways and it's interesting how this day had developed but in the uh, in the church year calendar in the history of the church year that this ancient calendar that the church uses it's known as St. Stephen's Day and I'm not sure why they, they whoever made such choices would have identified the day after Christmas as the day of remembrance of St. Stephen the martyr the one who died outside the walls was stoned and died outside the Jerusalem uh, walls Today is that day in the history of the church. Here, the second I was reminded this morning, driving out, that today is the first day of Kwanzaa and the beginning of another seven-day series of celebrations. And I was I learned this morning on the radio that Kwanzaa actually started in 1966, so it's the most recent. In the British Empire, today, the day after Christmas was known as Boxing Day and this was the day that everybody got off all of the hired help so that they could take advantage of a holiday after they had done all their good work to care for the people of uh, the, 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 the household service to care for the people of wealth so when you uh, if you uh, are interested in singing today a song you can sing that's actually set on this day is Good King Wenceslas and it begins with words that sound like this Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen today, when the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. Brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel, when a poor man came in sight gathering winter fuel. The rest of that song is a story about how this wealthy man saw a man, a poor man gathering fuel, and then on that day, the day after Christmas, demonstrated compassion, brought him in, and fed him as he was out gathering some fuel, some wood, to keep his, his house warm. So, day after Christmas, a lot of good things connected to it, and I'm glad you're here today because that simply adds a number, another layer of good things. How did Christmas celebrations go at your house? Everything went well? Lots of enthusiasm, excitement? Any drama? Any drama? <laughs> You wouldn't admit to it anyway. So every, uh, every time that families gather, celebrations take place, most of us know that there are certain expectations that go along with all of those activities and with, <coughs> with all of those celebrations. Uh, I suppose that many of you have already gotten over questions like this. Do we open our gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning? So you got that one cared for. And what's the order in which? Does everybody open at the same time, or does everybody get to stage up the opening and everybody gets a turn and has to wait, and it takes forever if that happens. In our house, the usual drama is this, and we start thinking about it a few days before Christmas. Actually, there's two, two pieces. The first is this, at our house will we be having Christmas day brunch or Christmas day dinner so will we have midday brunch with all of uh, whatever is required or do we defer and have a larger dinner late in the day and we've been all over the map on that but it's usually the first element of drama that's the first the second is this what's the menu and so it would begin like this Uh, somebody votes for turkey well we had that on Thanksgiving I think we'll have ham that's an option uh, how about something different? Ah, prime rib, which I always vote for. And so we've alternated between prime rib, turkey, and ham, and then something happened. And my daughter, Amy, um, got married, and her husband is Jewish. And so the ham is out. So we've got. <laughs> So the ham was the smallest piece. We have, to, we have to work with Brian around Hanukkah at Christmas at our house, which has turned out has, has gone very, very well in any case. So those are all good things. But there are, in all of those stories, all kinds of moments for drama. And for any of us, not just in our family, but I suspect in yours as well, there are opportunities for people to get lost. And to not know a place, not have a place, not find a place. Because the rituals, the routines, the traditions go far, far beyond what anyone might indeed actually be feeling and wanting to experience around those. (coughs) I'd like to read you a story from the second chapter of Luke And this is, it's in the second chapter, and remember the Christmas narrative, the story that we heard on Christmas Eve from Luke 1 through 20, same chapter. There are three major stories in Luke chapter 2. The first is the birth narrative. The second is the account of Joseph and Mary bringing the infant Jesus back to Jerusalem for the ritual dedication of Jesus and the meeting that happens there between Mary and Joseph and Jesus on the one hand and the old Simeon and Anna on the other. That's the second major event in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. The third major event is this one and it actually is 12 years later but Luke puts it in the second chapter because it all fits and this is what it sounds like. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up, after the, went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus had that privilege that many of us have had. That is, of growing up and of living in an observant religious family. And along the way, there are certain practices, certain customs, certain traditions that we kind of know are a part of being in such a family. And I want to think that Luke in chapter 2 tells us the stories, three stories, as reminders of how important it is to maintain those practices. The first is the journey to Bethlehem for a census instituted by the Romans. The second was the de- the visit to the temple for the dedication. The third was taking Jesus along at age 12 to the Passover celebrations, a different holiday, the Passover celebrations in the city of Jerusalem. Now, any of you who is or has been the parent of a 12-year-old boy would know about energy levels and that in terms of adolescent development, it didn't, make, it didn't seem too surprising that Jesus might not be found where he is expected to be found. But just a word about how that works. If we find ourselves astonished that he could be missing for a day in the caravan and then three days in the city, remember what Luke tells us that they looked for him first among relatives and friends. Because in that world, in those days, the practice of raising a child, caring for all children, was shared by the community. And so it wouldn't have been too surprising for Mary and Joseph to be traveling ahead, believing with absolute confidence that Jesus was someplace, the 12-year-old boy, was someplace in the caravan until they start inquiring among the neighbors and the friends. Where is Jesus? "Eh, haven't seen him. And then they go back. Then they go back to the city and they look in all the usual places, the usual places that a twelve-year-old boy would be found. And they, of course, discover after three days the usual places are not the places where Jesus is to be found. I mention this to you and read this story today because it is that reminder about how it is not only that we ourselves can get lost in the midst of the celebrations, (laughs) but how sometimes with all the best of our intentions, we can allow others to get lost as well and never quite know how it happened. It's easy to go missing in action. And one of the most vulnerable times for that to take place begins today, the day after Christmas. The day that we make our way home the day that we look back and want to be certain that everybody is cared for, everybody is safe, everybody is well, until it occurs. Oh, something happened. And how remarkable isn't it that when we celebrate the birth of Jesus a couple of days ago and worship here and observe it yesterday, But how quickly, how quickly Jesus goes missing from the Christmas celebration. And we get to ask ourselves are we spectators? Are we pilgrims? Are we tourists? Or are we disciples on this journey? And I know and I think you know as well as I do that in the holiday season in a Western culture such as ours it is so easy, so easy simply to be a tourist and a spectator and not know where and how even to find Jesus in the midst of that. We've heard the controversies, we've heard the arguments, we've listened to the complaints about Whatever about how Jesus or Christmas imposes on someone's values. That may or may not be true. But somehow along the way, we who are the people of God have made the declaration. That's why we gathered here Friday night. That's why we gather here today. Five years ago, my family and, and I... Uh, our daughters, my son-in-law, Caroline and I, uh, was, I'd been at Westland 10 years at that time and my congregation gave me a huge gift. They said, take Christmas off. It was massive. And so we had set up and planned and we met for Christmas in Spain, in Barcelona, Spain. And so on Christmas Eve, uh, we, when we arrived here, we were about four days ahead of Christmas, we noticed that all throughout the city were these little displays, these big creches uh, that had uh, a picture of the nativity. But we also, right near the hotel, the apartment that we'd rented, we found that there was one that was more popular than any of the other ones, and there were long lines to walk by it. Whenever we would go by, we we couldn't get up to it because the lines were so long. But late one night, we walked, we drove, we walked by the plaza, and we could the short line, we went up there, and we went up and it was beautiful. It was these these long, these big uh, carved images of the of the holy Family. and we looked over this railing. the manger was empty. There was no baby Jesus in the manger. And we looked and we thought, well, what happened? but this was the most popular of all of the scenes throughout the city. We finally did some inquiring and and asked, and he said, "Oh, On that one, a long, long time ago, somebody stole the baby Jesus. And when the city or the church had decided to replace the baby Jesus, maybe the church folks there said, no, do not replace it. Because what they said was this, Jesus is loose in the world. Jesus is loose in the world. And that became... The single most popular nativity display in the city of Barcelona, at least in that part of the city. So I want to think that there's a bit of a good side to the story of loss in this narrative from Luke chapter 2. That if Jesus isn't to be found in these places where we expect him to be found in the caravan, or in three days of searching, then I want to ask, and I hope, and I know you will too, where is Jesus to be found? When I was in seminary, one of our professors, as we were struggling to learn more and more about what it meant to become pastors in the church, said this to us. It was so powerful. He said, um, when you begin to lose sight of Jesus he did not say if you do he said when you do when you begin to lose sight of Jesus and he said it may happen in a year or two or ten or fifteen or twenty as a pastor he said don't make the mistake of going to a retreat and going off by yourself to look for Jesus and find Jesus in that manner he said first of all Look at the members of your congregation and find that person. He said, every church has one. The single most lonely person that you know, the one who hasn't been visited, the one who may not have been to church for a long while, and you go and visit that person because that's where you will find Jesus. And he said, if that doesn't work, you go to the soup kitchen and start pouring soup or you go stand in line at the homeless shelter and talk with the folks there. And I remember his words so clearly about that. And I remember also the words that Mother Teresa said when she was asked about, why do you do what you do among these people in the city of Calcutta? And she said, I do it because every time I look into the face, of the dying, the sick, the homeless, the hunger, the hungry, the poor, the ill. Every time I do that, I see the face of Jesus. As you know, Jesus' comment to his parents after they discovered him was this. Why are you surprised that I am where I am? You know that I would be in my Father's house. Probably, if we have lost sight of Jesus, we need to be surprised as well that we would find Jesus in the place least expected and to do it with some care. A woman tells the story of going to visit a longtime friend in Pennsylvania. She'd driven from, I think, D.C. or N- New Jersey, and she was driving across the hills uh, of southern Pennsylvania. She was headed toward a town called Mount Airy. She got lost before GPS, before cell phones. And as she blew, literally blew through the town of Mount Airy, she looked behind her. Police stopped speeding. She knew exactly, she said, she was 40 minutes late already by that point. This is what she said pulled out her registration, her insurance card, her driver's license, gave it to the officer, and said this. I'm so sorry, she said. I know I was speeding. But I've been lost for the last 40 minutes, and I cannot find Tower Terrace Road anywhere on the map. The officer, responding to her, said this. Well, I'm sorry about that, too, ma'am. But, he said this. What made you think that hurrying would help you find your way? What made you think that hurrying would help you find your way? In a world and in a culture that's shaped by a sense of frantic searching, frantic looking, I hope that you would hear these words from Luke chapter 2 again. And to hear them well. The words that Jesus said, Why would you be surprised to find me where I, which I would be expected to be found all along. Please join with me then in praying. Our prayer, Lord, is that our desire to find you, to meet you, to experience you, to know you, would not be lost in our frantic search, but in a moment of looking into the eyes of others. Spending time in places where you have told us that you would be found. And we pray as well that we would not allow ourselves to let you get lost even in our midst. And so we pray, Lord. Help us not so much to find you, but to look for you in places where we would least expect to. As we begin this week, we pray as well. That we would not lose you. In your holy name. Amen.